I'm Gabby Logan and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. And this time I'm joined by the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Andy became the Member of Parliament for Lee in 2001 and served as both Culture Secretary and Health Secretary under Gordon Brown. In 2017, he left Westminster to successfully run for the new role of Mayor of Greater Manchester and he was re-elected for a second term last year. Described unofficially by some as the King of the North, Andy has been a vocal advocate for the North of England, holding the government to account over its levelling up agenda in particular. Away from politics, Andy is a huge football fan and has also been president of the Rugby Football League. He lives in the North West with his wife and three children. In our interview, he tells me why Labour's defeat at the 1992 general election motivated him to pursue a political career, the financial lessons he learned from working in the Treasury during the financial crisis, and why his three children call their mum when they need money advice rather than him. Andy Burnham, this is the Family Money Show, the II Family Money Show. So I usually ask guests to go back to their childhood and tell me a little bit about where money came up in your life. Was it a point of uh, concern? Did you ever feel your parents were struggling or did they talk to you about money at all? Yeah, it, it was always uh, an issue, Gabby. So I wouldn't want to claim that we were you know, really hard done by, but it was always a, a concern, if you like, in, in the family. And um, we were, I guess, careful with everything that we, we did. So, you know, we didn't have foreign holidays as, as kids. Um, you know, it was a case of, you know, if, if you're going to have something, you're going to have to also save or work a little bit for it. So I think we all, that was the kind of context in which in which I, I grew up. But just to um, kind of add a broader point, there was always a feeling as well from my mum and dad that money is definitely not everything. Right. And They both worked, didn't they? Both your parents worked. They did. So my dad was a, a telephone engineer. Well, my mum and dad met uh, working for what was the old post office. My dad was an engineer. My mum was an operator. And they, they met at um, McGull Telephone Exchange. And over the years, my mum did different jobs. She was a GP receptionist for, for a long time. My dad got a job in Manchester, so they moved us all from Liverpool to Manchester, hence that, that, uh, that, that connection. So we were in a home where I'd say we were kind of, you know, we were comfortable but not well off, I guess is the way, the way I would describe it. So uh, money wasn't uh, abundant to the point where you didn't have foreign holidays. Did, did they ever save anything? Did they ever talk about pensions? Were they relying on state pensions? Uh, so, um, no, I think my dad had an occupational uh, pension, um, but there was always a, a feeling that they, they did have to be careful uh, about about things and you know that was if if they you know led led us to sort of kind of uh, kind of pick up something from from them it was always always that you know keep a you know a steady approach to your work mm-hmm. uh, always put something aside and for us as kids it was always a case of if you want something we're not just you're not gonna it's no. not gonna land out of nowhere and uh, you're gonna have to sort of contribute yourself so I think myself and my two brothers we always did sort of little jobs, if you like. For uh, them, paper. or did you work outside the house? Did you have a paper Oh, outside, no, no. Yeah. Well, a bit of that, you know, you know, sort of washing the car and all of that, the usual stuff. But, um, you know, uh, paper round. I, uh, I, I kind of sometimes look back and wonder how it was possibly legal to do a Sunday paper round because... <laughs> I used to be on my grifter with a bag that probably, you know, your neck sort of like, like that. You know, the papers were like that thick in those with days. With those Sunday supplements as well. They were I heavy. Know. I know. You couldn't get one through the letterbox without taking the front <laughs> cover off the paper. Which, well, I did a paper round for many, uh, many years. Um, 
Yeah, we all did. We all, I did a pools round at one point when I was in my more teenage years. Um, we all worked in a supermarket. So I think, yeah, my mum and dad were both, were always kind of sent, you know, created a sense of, you know, things don't just land mm-hmm. on, you know, you will have to, you know, contribute yourselves. So the jobs they did would imply that they didn't go to university. They they went from school straight into the workplace. Yeah. Uh, you did. You went to a very good university. You went to Cambridge. So yeah. tell me about that kind of, you know, I know somebody who's the first person in my family to go to university. When there isn't a history of graduates in the family, you know, it, it takes somebody, doesn't it, to break the mould a little bit. And then for you to go to Cambridge as well, how did that kind of happen? And who was encouraging you? Well, it was my English teacher, Stephen Harrington, who I met recently, actually. It was pretty much all down to, to him. I never thought I could uh, aspire to Cambridge and he he kind of uh, built me up into a position when I did actually apply it was it was brilliant on one level but completely disorientating on another in that arriving in in Cambridge in the late 1980s from the northwest you know you just couldn't relate the world you'd gone into from the one you'd come from and you know it actually would have a later bearing in my life you know, Hillsborough happened when I was at, at Cambridge. And I always remember being at home for the Easter holidays here and everything related to that was happening here and all the feelings about that. And I went back to Cambridge for the summer term and it was as if it hadn't happened. And mm-hmm. that was a sort of a, you know, a hard thing really to relate where I'd grown up to, to the university that I was then a part what, of. Was it the privilege? Was it the, um, did you feel a sense of uh, being detached from what you saw at Cambridge? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I kind of loved it as as well, but I also had that imposter syndrome that uh, people would have if you know, their parents hadn't been to university. You know, kind of feeling that somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder here and throw me out at any any given moment. And you know, it, I was surrounded by these very confident people who spoke in a sort of way that I'd never really heard before. And you know, it took me about. I would say 18 months, two years to work out they were talking complete rubbish half the time. It's, it sounded so good for that first <laughs> year. Did you feel like you had to adopt their traits? Because I've always found that quite interesting as well. You know, that do I morph into them, you know, to, to fit in? Or am yeah. I going to ca- carry on being true to who I am and where I'm from? Because that's really hard for a young person. It really is. It's a, probably a bit of both, isn't it? You do. A, I can remember going home from uh, from university and my brothers would and friends in the pub would spend a good week completely uh, uh yeah rinsing me and taking <laughs> Till the you get your and, accent back <laughs> yeah yeah so you kind of went through this readjustment thing and then you know so you yeah it was kind of hard living between those two worlds but i think you eventually find the confidence don't you and you kind of realize that you should be true to who you are i was at a college in cambridge which was kind of renowned for being the more state school college fitzwilliam college mm-hmm. so we kind of had a a sort of a slight, a bit of a Wimbledon mentality, if that makes sense. You know, the old, uh, yeah, we, whenever we played football, we kind of like, yeah, we always kind of, that, that's the kind of general general mood we had when we played all the, the posher colleges. <laughs> um, so you went and did English and then ended up eventually as chief secretary to the treasury, right? So there's a big, <laughs> there's a big kind yeah. of uh, learning that needs to go on yeah. there. You think of somebody that works in the treasury as being somebody that might have done an economics degree or, so let's yeah. start talking about your political ambitions and where they became yeah. a real thing. Was Cambridge the place where you started to be a lot more active politically? So I'd always already been active um, in my teenage years in uh, the Lee area where I, where I grew up and ultimately became the MP for um, and actually, when I got to Cambridge, it was the opposite. I went along to some of the university um, kind of political societies and kind of felt it was not 
real, you know, it was different and people were kind of playing at it. I always remember there was a really salutary moment in my um, my university days when I was getting a grant. So I got one of the old, it's barely believable, is it, that mm. once a month, I tell my kids this, that once a month I went to um, the, the purser's office or the purser, I one, of the, one, of the, one of the two, and had to pick up a, a cheque from Cheshire County Council, you know, to me. You know, it's just unbelievable that, isn't it? Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> um, and I used to get this, a grant, you know, a maintenance grant. And I remember when my younger brother came to stay with me and he was not so much on the university route and quite sceptical about it. So he was staying with me in Cambridge. And I remember saying to him, like, we're going to go on a grants, not loans march today, you know, and he coming with me. And he was like, no chance. You know, all of my mates who are you know, training to be mechanics or whatever and, you know, yeah. they don't get a grant. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to get out of bed and walk around Cambridge calling for one for you. And I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, um, it, it was a very, yeah, I think I was at university in a very different time as well. And life's moved on a lot since Yeah, then. so could, could your career have gone in a very different direction then? Were there other things you thought about um, doing? I mean, one would think that you were interested in journalism and writing, being a, a student of English. Yeah, I, so I started um, as a journalist, my very first job. Coming out of university, I came back to the Northwest and wanted to work in the media. And the only thing I could find was as a uh, unpaid reporter on the Middleton Guardian. So I started on the Middleton Guardian in Manchester, but you know, quickly realized I couldn't support myself um, without a salary. And I did, I think what many people of my generation uh, did, eventually realized that you had to move south if you really wanted to, to get on. And so I carried on working in, in London as a journalist, but it was around the time of the 1992 general election. And I was you know, very much sort of involved in, in that, sort of emotionally involved in it and did a little bit of campaigning. And it was at that time, I was so devastated by the, the, the defeat uh, for Labour in that election that um, I was at work one day, I was working for something called Baltic Publishing, which was a sort of trade magazine uh, publisher. And I was saying how devastated I was. And this person next to me said, oh, you, you, should, you should apply to work for my stepmother. She's just been in, elected as a Labour MP. Um, and that person who said that turned out to be Eleanor Mills, who subsequently went on to uh, edit the Sunday Times magazine. And her stepmother she was talking about was Tessa Jowell. And that was one of those moments in life, Gabby, where you can't legislate for that, can you? Mm, but someone no. said something like that to you. So eventually I did apply and I did get the job. And that's when I jumped from a very early career in, in journalism to politics. Things could be so different for you, couldn't they? When you think about those, you know, it's really interesting talking to people on this podcast about starting out with one idea, perhaps about who you who you are and where you're going to go in life and then being open to those kinds of conversations. And perhaps your experiences at Cambridge actually, you know, might have helped you be more open to those possibilities and opportunities, even though at the time you might not have, have, have seen it quite so directly. Yes. I remember though, as a, as a young man, even in my twenties, certainly through my time at Cambridge, I, I probably wanted to be an MP from probably my middle teenage years, but wouldn't have dared say it in front of mm. people. Um, and that went on quite a long time, even when I was working in parliament, because you always feared the, what, you, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of reaction. So I kind of feel sometimes people from, let's say, a less university background in terms of their family kind of feel it harder to go out there over the line and say, yes, I want to be a, 
uh, an MP or a doctor or, you know, because you fear that somebody would, would knock you down for saying that. You must see more diversity now, though, in politics. It can't be quite the same now when you see young politicians coming through across both sides of the house. Or do you still think it's that way? Oh, I, yeah, I, 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 I am not sure it has moved forward because, you know, I was obviously, I'll be honest, the generation of more career politicians, wasn't it? That was a mm-hmm. change that was mm-hmm. coming at that time. And that has, is totally steeped in privilege, isn't it? Because yeah. you have to be able to afford to sacrifice a career effectively. When I went to stand to be the MP for Lee, I mean, talking about money, you need a lot of money to stand uh, for firstly selection to be the the selected candidate for your party. You know you have to kind of step away from work. So I I stopped work for the time. I went back to live with my mum and dad. Um, I remember that as a really tough time because uh, I just had my you know, my first child at that. Not me, but you know, we we had our first child at that point. Um, so yeah, it's standing for selection, I think, is a very costly thing to do. And that weeds out a lot of people who've got less access to, to money or a supportive family. And the old trade union route, certainly on the Labour side of politics, isn't kind of supporting, you know, that doesn't bring as many people through uh, as it used to. So I'm not sure it has actually moved in a positive direction when you look at the, the backgrounds of people who make it to Parliament. So let's talk about the man who did a, an English degree working, you know, under Gordon Brown, working at the Treasury. Tell me how we know that politicians obviously have brilliant briefings from their civil servants and you get very much up to speed with what's going on. How, how difficult was that to, to get your head across everything from, you know, the, the health of the nation to the wealth of the nation? Yeah. Oh, well, it, it, it was um, it's a great privilege. And I, I don't think personally you're going in as a minister to be the expert. You're not, I don't think. The, the Treasury is full of experts. Um, what you're going in to be is uh, somebody who's going to stand for the public interest and kind of test some of that expert advice as, as regards what's right, fair and, and proper. So I, as a minister, never, you know, never worry. I did read up. I did always, you know, um, uh, do, do, do the background. But I think... Sometimes if you go in there thinking you're going to be an, another expert along with all the other experts, you're almost not understanding what the role of the, the minister is, uh, to be honest. In many ways, you're holding that machine to account for the average person, aren't you? And um, mm-hmm. uh, consequently, it's important not to disappear up the sort of, you know, the, the kind of or down the rabbit hole of all of these you know, different bits of expert advice. Oh, it's a, I mean, it's just a, a fantastic privilege to, mm. to, to do that, to, to do that uh, job. And it was a difficult time, if you remember. I went into the Treasury when uh, Northern Rock uh, was just uh, was just happening, and I'll remember that day very vividly um, uh, when all of that the queues were forming outside those side those branches. I did have a bit of. I mean, I, I think sometimes people with accents in politics don't get the same treatment off the Westminster Press. And I do remember the day I was walking up Downing Street to be appointed Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And someone shouted out, "Have you got maths O level, Mister Burnham?" From the, and I, and I kind of, said, I, I just laughed or something, and then they wrote it up that I that I didn't, uh, when I actually do. <laughs> but you just extraordinary. Had, yeah, I know, and it was like became one of those like I, something I had to try and shake off. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Westminster for you. So all this time, when your career's growing and you're um, working in, in government and you've got ministerial posts, how are your kind of personal financial investments going along? And who's who's in charge of those in the uh, Burnham household? Well, that, I am not. If I'm 
honest, great on that side of things. You know, you're, I, you, I, you're not alone. And the people, the incredible people I speak to on this podcast, it's amazing how many people go, I don't really do that. So, somebody I, else seems to I do I know. It. And I wouldn't know whether I should say to you, shall I really do this podcast? Because <laughs> I, no, I am no expert at all. And if anything, I go back to my upbringing. It was kind of, the advice I always got from my mum and dad was, don't um, think that it solves everything because it doesn't. And don't fall out over money with anybody, you know, always, you know, just if there's a dispute, get rid of it and don't, you know. And so that was kind of uh, where I came from. Whereas my my wife's family were kind of more, you know, were kind of, if you like, more traditional aware in terms of, investment of their investments. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that, that was the kind of, that was the difference. So she was naturally uh, going to be the leader on those things in the house then? Yeah. Yes, uh, definitely. And um just more, you know, I, I guess politics is like excuses, isn't it? But, you know, the, the job is so consuming in terms of what you've got to do, you know, to, 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 to support your public role that sometimes, you know, the, the capacity to, yeah. to do all that stuff is, is a bit limited. Well, I've spoken to Alistair Campbell on this podcast and, uh, yeah, it might not surprise you to know he doesn't do anything at all with, when it comes to the family finances. Fiona does all of that. So, yeah, uh, yeah you're definitely not right. we're, we're a pretty good parallel to those two, I think. So. <laughs> I, I'm desperate to know whether Gordon Brown did his own. I mean, that would really then blow the, the kind of lid off all of this if he turned around and said, no, I didn't do any investments. Sarah did all, uh, all of that. Um, but working yeah, that alongside- be a revelation. I don't know. I think he probably did actually go <laughs> Working alongside and for somebody like him, uh, who has such, you know, astute and deep financial kind of knowledge and was steeped in, in that area. Did you learn anything from those kind of conversations about your own personal investments? Oh, well, I, I learned a huge amount um, from Gordon and Alistair Darling, who was, who was Chancellor at the time. Because if you remember... It wasn't just Northern Rock. Things then went into you know, meltdown Freefall. overall. Mm. And Gordon's role uh, in kind of providing leadership, um, you know, because what, what I learned was just how quickly, I, you know, something I had taken for granted as somebody who'd not grown up with a strong financial background, who wasn't you know, employed in finance. You think, don't you, that the financial systems of the country and the world solid. will be mm. rock solid and mm. they'll be there. And, mm. you know, they're just like the fundamentals of life. And, I do go back to that day in the Treasury at seeing how, you know, being alarmed at just how fragile that situation was. And I remember a car crash interview I gave, I think with Eddie Mayer on the PM programme. I just genuinely, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what to say. And Alistair Darling said to me, will you go out and do the interview? Because if I do it, if I, if I say something, it'll have a different impact on the market than if, than if you do. But the truth was, I was at, you know, none of us, people didn't know what to say um, at that moment. Because could you say don't form a queue outside? You know, mm. if they were logically forming a queue because yeah. of this, you know, it was a it was really really tough. And I'll i I will say hands up. You know, I, I you know, it, it it took. I didn't understand what was happening mm. and what you needed to do to stop it. And it was only in the days that followed that I began to see how Gordon and Alistair kind of realised that. If nobody steps in, this thing does go into free fall and, and, you know, keeps falling. Was your, that day when you were doing those interviews, was your impression that things would right themselves? Did you just feel because of that upbringing where they were rock solid institutions that this would just be okay? Or, or were you just not briefed well enough? It, well, it was, I don't think anybody was, because I don't think, when had we seen that in Britain, um, in living memory, you know, queues outside a, a bank as it was, but, you know, a building society that mm. became a bank. Um, well, we hadn't, had we? And so, you know, I, the Treasury didn't 
no. know quite what to say. <laughs> yeah. And I asked them, I remember asking them, is this a loan? Are they on their own? You know, is this an isolated mm-hmm. thing that's just a Northern Rock thing? And, mm. you know, and again, they couldn't answer that question. So I was, that was why it was so, so tough. This is fascinating, though, to hear because obviously, you know, from the outside, we're at home watching the telly, getting our information from the radio and the TV, and you assume that the grown-ups all know what's going on, you know, <laughs> and that that it's that it's they've got a plan, and and obviously this is a completely new landscape that's 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 evolving here at, at a rapid pace as well, wasn't it? You know, it was unraveling really quickly. Oh, it was. It was just it, it, if you remember, it almost you know there was rumours about Northern Rock, and then it just you know, on that day when people's, you know, and this is the thing where behaviour kind of takes over the theory, if you like. So mm-hmm. when people just started forming queues outside mm-hmm. branches, the image of one queue outside a branch led to another one. Another one. Led to well, another well, one. We, we saw that in the pandemic as well, didn't we? You know, yeah. when people were told we're not going to run out of toilet roll, but they still went and bought the nation's toilet rolls. You look back <laughs> at that, don't you, and think, what on earth were they doing with those toilet rolls all through that period? You know, and, uh, Extraordinary, yeah. But Extraordinary. That, that is, the psychology of behaviour is fascinating. How do you for that in those mm. in those moments? I mean, you're right. It's a really interesting parallel, that isn't it? Once that is happening, it's and it's the same, I guess, with petrol more recently, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you those crazy two weeks we had where people yeah. were queuing around the block for petrol. So, so that's enormous learnings for you as you know, Massive. as a politician to go through those experiences. Um, and obviously you were in a, I mean, you look back now, a moment in history that will be taught, you know, to, to future generations, really that, you know, that political time and what was going on with the economy and banks. And um, when you came through that um, and moved, moved on in your political career, what did you take with you? there that that made you better at your job i i think it was um something around the unpredictability of events i think the northern rock situation then the financial crash that we've had has almost become the norm now hasn't it in in the times that we're in you know at that time i think that was the first shock that hit what felt to be quite a stable world really mm-hmm. at that moment in time but I, what has happened is they've kept on coming, haven't they, over, mm-hmm. the, over the, the decade or more since. We're just being hit by repeated shocks. And I guess what I've come to view now is nothing is a given at all. And you need um, to act with quick judgments in, in moments uh, that, that we're living through and be, be, be clear about what you think rather than caught in the headlights. Mm-hmm. So in the pandemic, um, I very much adopted that approach, you know, even though at times, you know, you might call something wrong, it was better to come out and say, well, look, I'm in a leadership position. We've not lived through this before, but I'm saying that I feel this is the right the right thing to do. Uh, and it would have been the same after the Manchester Arena bombing, where I just mm-hmm. had to get out and, you know, provide um, that leadership because people, mm-hmm. as you said before, will look to people in positions of responsibility. And the world moves so quick these days that you don't get the luxury of, pondering over it for, for three or four days, you, you, you have to um, be able to form a coherent response in that moment. And misinformation can spread so quickly as well, can't it, because of social media. So if, if we don't have yeah. our leaders coming out with something that is perhaps they don't have all the knowledge, but there is something that needs to be uh, said, reassuring people or just you know making some kind of decision. It is interesting, actually, how politics has, has changed so much because of all these kinds of huge things that keep happening and how people 
trust or tr- maybe they trust less what, who they trust you know where they go for their information yeah definitely Gabby I mean I think social media changed politics the question is did social media media also help change the world and has it created some of this volatility that we are mm. we're, we're living through I think it probably has to a degree and the question is what does the politician do in those in those circumstances you know how do you engage in that Kind of, it's a very, you know, very. I've always said that, you know, I was 16 years as the MP for Lee. I kind of say that, you know, I can break it down to if you consider it a game of football, a game of two halves, the first eight years were like playing a more gentle game of football. And suddenly it became like we came out for the second half and it was rugby league and no one told you because <laughs> it just became brutal. You know, and you were getting battered from sides and you didn't know. That social media changed politics that fundamentally. It really did. Because you didn't get that luxury anymore of thinking about mm-hmm. things, mulling it over, mm-hmm. and you know you make you know you just were getting hit repeatedly from all sides, and I think that has changed politics, and I'm not sure we've ever acknowledged just how much that that has changed mm-hmm. politics. Uh, can we go to, back to your time as um, shadow secretary for education, um, and just briefly, kind of, we're talking here about family finances. Do you think we should formalise? financial education for children so that there is time given over in the curriculum to help them understand what is coming down the tracks for them as adults? 100%. And actually, it's a call I get from uh, teenagers in Greater Manchester all the time. They talk about a curriculum for life. And and I think it does reflect the uh, sense that the modern world has become a lot more complex and that they feel they need, and I think they're right, much more guidance to be able to navigate this complexity and develop a literacy about mm. finance and, and other things. And I, yeah, it's still the case. You know, I remember learning how to make all kinds of strange things at school, like a Victoria sponge or a chocolate. I've never made one ever since school, but I, I did uh, for, for a while get taught those kind of things. And yet you don't get taught about the no. basics of a bank account, do you? Or, no. you know, or, or, or managing a budget, um, and definitely, definitely, I think, you know, that curriculum for life uh, idea should be at the heart of, of the curriculum. Financial literacy kind of brings emotional and mental mm-hmm. well-being, doesn't it? You know, of if course. you don't give mm-hmm. people those skills, I think you're leaving pe- young people quite exposed. Mm. And, and what we, we observe in Greater Manchester, certainly through the pandemic, well, it was there before, but has become more accentuated since. The, the mental health and well-being of our young people is becoming less and less secure, if you like, as we as we go forward. Something needs to change to to bring that resilience back. What about your own children? Do you speak to them about financial planning? Are they do they have jobs? Do they have to earn their pocket money? They they do have jobs actually, and I'm pleased to say that because we have adopted the same thing that you know good things don't just land out of the sky and you know and people don't have to work for them. So, yeah, they, they do all, all work in, in different things. One in McDonald's, one in a, a bar in, in Liverpool. Uh, another one worked, worked in a restaurant in London for a long time. So I'm pleased to say they are all hard workers. They're grafters. Uh, they are. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that they get comes from the work that they've uh, And would your, with. as you're, you've said that your wife is in charge of all those kinds of things like ISAs and pensions, would they turn to her, do you think, for advice when they get their first oh, yeah. salaries? That <laughs> They wouldn't ring me. That's, that's <laughs> absolute, uh, absolute certain. Have you, have you also um, ignited any political ambition in your children? Well, I think they've all, 
kind of turned a little bit the other way, to be honest, <laughs> just because of having lived with it. True, I the stresses of it. True in your your family, and you know, because they see the stresses and the, the the things, the sacrifices. I remember very vividly at the 2015 election when I was taking Jimmy to um, to rugby training, and it was in the middle of the general election, and I was like stopping at the lights and I was flashing people to come out and I was like, you know, and Jimmy turned to me and went, dad, stop election driving. I've got to get to training. <laughs> and I remember thinking. How old was he? 15 at the 15, time. And 15. I, yeah, I remember Election thinking, driving. I know, I know. And you, you kind of, you don't think that they see all of the things that you do, but they do. And I don't know. I think, you know, they just spent their, their childhoods, if you like, waiting in a supermarket while I was getting harangued about a certain issue or, you know, I suppose anyone in the public eye gets this to a degree. So they'd kind of grown up with that. And um, it's put them off a little bit. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Although Jimmy might be uh, turning in that direction a little bit more. Yeah, more. maybe when as they get a little bit older and detach themselves from those experiences, perhaps they'll see yeah. it slightly differently. Um, yeah. And finally, this this role that you have now as, as Mayor of Greater Manchester has its own challenges, different challenges to those of kind of being in Westminster. Does it feel like you're able to make change quicker in that kind of environment because you're kind of on the ground um, in the community that you're trying to help? Yes, it does. Um, and the change that you make is often much more of a practical nature. So we've worked a lot on homelessness and we've kind of rallied everybody around. And that's been a really um, fantastic thing to be, to be involved with. Um, and it's more real change in a way that Westminster can be quite abstract change at times, just passing laws that might take effect two or three years later. What The one thing I do find is I'm much happier in this role. Uh, I found it to be quite liberating. The thing that I struggled more and more with in Westminster was the kind of told to vote in a certain way, told to say a certain thing. I think there's a reason why politicians often struggle to come over to people because they can't always answer questions honestly, if you like, um, or they can't vote in the ways that they really would want to vote. And I I've, do feel that Westminster politics in the end starts to make a fraud out of politicians because they can't be truly who they want to be because of the way mm. the whip system uh, works. And for me, I mean, that did all come to a head over Hillsborough where, you know, I, I was invited as the culture secretary to the 20th anniversary where you know the, the professional me was meant to toe a line of a government that hadn't done enough mm. uh, for, for the families. Whereas the personal me, the private me, knew my heart was with them, not with mm. the kind of official line that I was meant to parrot. And so that was something of a departure point for me, Gabby, if I'm honest. I, I broke, if you like, from the path I'd been on at that time. And I kind of became a little more semi-detached, really, within mm. that Westminster system. I fell out of love with it to the point where this role kind of felt like it would suit me much better. And it does, because I do, you know, try and... I am closer to the ground. I do try and call things as I see them. I, I try not to overdo the point scoring these days and, you know, focus a bit more on practical, practical mm -hmm. change. So it seems to be working okay. Yeah, and I've managed to get through all of this and not talk about Everton. So um, <laughs> should we leave it on a happy note? Because the yeah, thing leave about, it on the the thing, about <laughs> the thing about a podcast is you never know when somebody's listening and things can change very quickly. So for your sake, I hope your Premier League status is well and truly assured and you grow stronger and the culture of the club uh, turns but into I'll a winning that, one. <laughs> one thing I do know, with Everton, it'll be a roller coaster before any of that happens. But, and uh, the great thing about being the Mayor of Greater Manchester, you also have some very positive football stories around the corner that you can go and well, uh, join I, in with. <laughs> 
I can be impartial. I'm equally in favour of them both beating Liverpool whenever they play them. So that's the way I generally, uh, generally go about it. Thank you very much, Andy. Cheers, Gabby. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you've got time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 